Welcome to the latest Euro Intelligence podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today we want to talk about monetary policy. The ECB has yesterday had a meeting of its governing council and while it did not change monetary parameters, the purchase programs or the interest rates, it signaled a change in language a change that it is at least an acknowledgement that it is now more concerned about inflation than what appeared to be the case a month or two a month ago. The language used to be that inflation was transitory. It's now called temporary. This reminds me a little bit of the time when John Cleet Trichet fine-tuned the language when he was president of the ECB and used lots of code words that had certain signals with markets I don't think we're back to the, the code word period, but there is clearly a shift in language. And as Christine Lagarde said, they've been talking about nothing but inflation during the, the meeting. They're still not alarmed. I, you know, I would probably say that I'm more alarmed than they are. I'm, you know, I'm still sort of in the 50-50 camp on inflation. I believe there is a, there is a risk that inflation might prove persistent. We're hearing from industry sources that it might. Then again, there is the possibility that higher energy prices have a, a recessionary impact on the economy. It, it reduces real earnings of people and that they might therefore reduce their demand for goods and prices might not rise as much as, as possible. These are counter counteracting effects in the economy that need to play out over the next few years. But I would be very cautious at this stage to rule out the possibility of higher inflation because inflation is to a large extent a global phenomenon these days. This is also a point where I disagree with Christine Lagarde that she, in her assertion that the Eurozone is not a small open economy. Well, technically that's true. It's not a small open economy, but I think it is a large open economy as opposed to a large closed economy. And being a large open economy means that one is, one is dependent on, on external events, on the external economy. And there are significant signs of price pressures building up in the global economy, not because of supply bottlenecks. This is a, a trigger like a one-time energy shock. We should not be overly concerned about those. But the problem in the global economy is the, the result of excess, in my view, excessive fiscal support that goes well beyond the, the pandemic that is resulting into in an excess global demand that the, the, the markets cannot meet sufficiently quickly and that will result in higher inflation. And some of that inflation will be imported into the Eurozone. So we are very concerned about these developments and particularly concerned, and this was what we wrote about today, we are concerned that the ECB being complacent today may be panicking next year, that it goes straight from one mode to another instead of slowly preparing the ground. This is going to be a very difficult tightrope walk to get the economy from this decade of you know, whatever it takes type support back onto an, a normal trajectory. It is not a matter of simply reversing everything. You can't just stop the asset purchases or even sell the bonds. You can't just turn negative interest rates into positive interest rates in within a few months. This, there has to be a strategy behind it. The ECB's pre-announced strategy of first stopping the asset purchases before raising interest rates looks increasingly impractical to me. So I believe that the, well, they will need to actually think about this much more carefully and in much greater detail of how to exit uh, from, this, from this period into another period. And this is not necessarily an exit into a period of high inflation. 
This is simply an exit into a period of normal inflation. Uh, even that would require a very carefully calibrated strategy to avoid the possibility of a central bank-induced recession, because that's the way it used to go. The way the way the you know the, the people talked about the central bank taking away the punch the punch pool before the party is going. That was an old expression coined by the Federal Reserve back in the 1970s and 80s. This is a little bit more complicated this time because you're dealing not just with interest rates, you're dealing with other instruments, you're dealing with liquidity policies, you're dealing with QE, they're all interacting and the sequencing is, is, is going to be important. And the simple sequencing the ECB had in mind of just stopping this and then starting this, it may have served some purpose back you know, back during the you know, deflation days, but it's not sufficiently calibrated enough to be a credible policy nor do I think it is credible to commit yourself to a certain level of interest rates for the next for next year, irrespective of what might happen. I think that you know I've been a critic of forward guidance. We've we've not liked it. we've not liked the strategy of pre-committing yourself. It seems to be against, and we can see the tactical advantage during a certain period, during the period of uh, the disinflationary period. But forward guidance is not the right thing to do now except to talk in terms of conditional situations where you say, okay, in, in a high inflation scenario, we would do that. In a normal inflation scenario, we would do that. And in a deflationary scenario, we would do that. That's a better form of forward guidance than than this unilateral statement of we're not going to raise interest rates next year because you know, they might have to. So circumstances might change. We are living in very volatile times so that they might need the, need the flexibility. I have heard, you know, there are people who argue that we don't have to worry about inflation because there are no indications of a wage price spiral. And while that is true in terms of published data, we don't, you know, the if you look at, it, especially in Italy and in Germany, if you look at wage Costs this year are not particularly strong. They don't rise very strongly. But what one of the things we keep hearing uh, from different EU countries and from different sectors in the economy that wage uh, pressures are indeed going up. Uh, so, Susanna, you wrote about rising wage pressures in some segments of the French economy. Can you talk about this a bit? Yes, I can. So France is very different from Germany. So in Germany, you have very powerful trade unions who actually set the, the wages and therefore implicate or set the standards for the rest of the economy. That is not so much the case in France. There are much more trade unions. It's much broader. It's it's much more atomized in a sense. And the power, the, the, the power to set the wages is less. But what we observe here is two things. One is that the inflation and the unemployment rate much to the surprise of the politicians and everyone else, um, turned out to, the, to levels even before the crisis, actually better than before the crisis. So there has been a huge decline in these numbers. I think it was 200,000 just in one month after 50,000 uh, the month before. So there seems to be an acceleration in the labor market in terms of getting those people, on unemployment people, back on, in the job. On the other hand, we see unemployment rates um, are rising and in certain segments there is shortages of labor supply. We see that there is a mismatch a little bit in, 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 in skills. In certain sectors, employers are desperately look, looking for 
qualified personnel and cannot find them anywhere in the market, which might also have something to do with uh, how we are in this corona crisis, that people are no longer so flexible and moving around as they used to be. But also, one of the commentators in Lizzie Kuh was pointing out that people are now shopping for better paid jobs and that we are in a different market than we were before. Even you can say that this, while this is kind of early signs, it hasn't yet triggered through the whole system. It's, yet, it's not yet a macro, uh, macro phenomenon. But these are early signs that things are shifting, the mood is shifting in the labor market, and that will ultimately lead to some form of wage, uh, wage pressure, whether it will cover all the segments or just part of the segments. But it might well be that enough sectors will witness this kind of wage push to be relevant for a bigger picture. But we also see some movements in terms of on the labor market in Italy. So, Jack. Um, yeah, so I wrote about this earlier this week. I think what gets interesting when you look at Italy is in terms of its labor force participation statistics, right? So something with respect to the US that's been talked about quite a bit in the post-pandemic recovery has been the fact that you had a slump in labor force participation, which is what you'd expect, but that it hasn't really recovered there to the same extent or on the same trend that it was following before the pandemic. Now, among major euro area economies, that's generally not the case. Like if you look at, say, Spain or Germany or France, and they're just their labor force participation statistics, what you'll find is that actually the recovery has kind of been on trend. But Italy is the exception to that, where their labor force participation has followed a more American style pattern since the end of the pandemic. And it hasn't really kind of recovered to the same level that it was trending at before. And then when you kind of look a bit more at Italy in terms of its labor force participation um, and the difficulties that some employers have been having, a few few things stand out, right? Um, One of them, which the newspaper owned by Confindustria, the um, Employers Federation, talked about uh, this week was a kind of trend of, you know, again, similar to the US, a great resignation where in Italy in um, Q2 2021, almost half a million people quit their jobs. That was an increase of 85% on the year before. Um, so, you know, what you're seeing is people um, voluntarily leaving, you know, for, for various different reasons. Sometimes it's a sector to sector move. Sometimes people like in France are looking for higher wages. Um, and sometimes they're also going to self-employment. Something else to note with Italy is that compared to other EU countries, it has a relatively high number of people who are available to work but not actively seeking a job. So that's that's something else to take into consideration. I, you know, I think a lot of those people, because Italy has had persistently high unemployment for quite some time, uh, effectively, they initially started looking for a job, but then they gave up. And you know, now it's also a matter of getting them to then look for something again. And, and something else to note, which is again similar to France, is a skills mismatch. And this is something that you know employers in Italy are also talking about where they're having more difficulty recruiting as they get into kind of higher skilled and more technical areas where they're just not finding what they need. And again, this is something I wrote about in terms of its kind of wider effect. I think that there are various different arguments you can make about what the impact is going to be, whether it's necessarily negative entirely or maybe even a bit positive, depending on what's driving it. You know, you could take the view if this is a kind of temporary phenomenon that it's almost the labor market readjusting and 
you could have an outcome where you know labor allocation is more efficient. I, I guess if you're thinking about productivity, what matters less is kind of the actual baseline labor force allocation, sorry, labor force participation statistics. And what matters more is how well skills and um, you know types are matched to jobs going forward. But at the same time, if you're seeing a longer term slump, um, this can obviously cause macroeconomic problems. Yeah, I mean, Italy is an, is an interesting uh, case because if we look at the recovery plan, Italy's uh, and all the countries had to had to write sort of estimates of the employment impact of the recovery uh, plan money. It was interesting to see that while Spain, France, Germany all had very significant employment effects from the from the EU's recovery money, that was not the case in Italy. So there's something something going on in the Italian labor market that is, you know, I don't want to speculate. I, you know, the, the honest answer is I don't know what it is. And, you know, the labor force participation data is another sort mm -hmm. of part of the puzzle. We, this, is a, this is a very different economy to those of other economies. Now, we know that traditionally Italian labor force participation was lower than and that in other countries because of social issues, you know, the, the way families are organized. Um, you know, especially in, 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 conserv families, in con yeah. conservative, exactly mm -hmm. that that often families have a single wage earner still, and people live in the same family home for many years, even after they they leave college, often with no work. Um, so the the Italian labor force participation is a is different. So the question is, are these? I mean, what one probably would would want to know is whether these are young people who are leaving leaving the job and are basically re re resigned to being resigned, <laughs> or whether these are people who just temporarily entered the workforce out of necessity in the last decade as an austerity, as an austerity play, but because of the uh, subsistence payments that the uh, five-star government introduced, you remember they introduced the sort of the similar minimum minimum subsistence payments the Germans did, or in fact the same level as the Germans did. This sort of citizens' income, as the mm -hmm. Italians call it, the Germans call it Hartz IV. It's quite possible that that created, a, together with the pandemic relief, that that created mm -hmm. uh, an incentive for some people to leave the labor force and take the money rather than rather than work. Now it's a speculation. I have no idea whether that is indeed the case, but there's certainly something odd going on in Italy. I mean, you said it was in Q2 uh, that this huge uh, outflow from, from the labor force came. Because initially, when I read this, I thought, oh, maybe it's because of the mandatory uh, vaccination. Because if we heard that in some companies, that's the, the new dividing line that you actually have to be vaccinated or test every day in order to come to work. And um, that created new kind of conflicts for people. Uh, and might force some of the people to quit voluntarily. But uh, it seems to be the case that uh, that's another pressure on the social yeah, system, absolutely. right? Uh, in another way of redistributing the chances on the labor market. Uh, yeah, no, but this is um, not due to the mandatory vaccination because you, we're not going to see the effect of that on labor force participation until much later on. Um, you know, not not to mention the fact that a lot of people kind of already got vaccinated beforehand. But you about, know, about ten percent non-vaccination rates are still 
would still show up in statistics. Oh yeah, they would definitely still show up in statistics, especially given the kind of very marginal nature of the changes in labor force exactly. participation. Um, and also you could argue that this is a temporary problem, right? Uh, if we come out of the pandemic, whatever that, whatever that time will be, and the necessity to have mandatory rules in place will fall away. So you could say this is a temporary effect in the labor market that would might cause some exodus of labor, uh, labor supply and who might prepare either the basic income or some other forms of subsistence levels uh, until until coming out on the other side. I think that would be a temporary problem. What you're referring to in Q2, that might be much more. That might perhaps be a more of a structural reason if we ever get to the bottom of it. And if the basic income is all of a sudden an alternative where people can choose what they want to do and live from, that definitely is a, stru a structural shift. Yeah, and um, the Q2 one, so, you know, what you're talking about, Wolfgang, where people are basically kind of taking the money and the, the assistance they've been offered and using that to leave the workforce more or less permanently, it kind of looks, for instance, like that's what we're seeing in the US at the moment. Um, of course, it's different in Italy to the US because one of the aggravating factors in the US has been persistently poor labor conditions, um, not as much of a concern in Italy necessarily. At the same time, without wanting to kind of come down too hard on one particular side, I feel like that's that might be what's happening. If you if you drill into the statistics on people who are available to work but not seeking, um, what you find is that a very large proportion of them are women. Um, you know, traditionally as well, um, Italy has had kind of lower female participation in the uh, labor force than um, most other Euro area countries. So um, it, it, could, it could well be that you had a lot of people, as you say, who were brought into the labor force over the last decade. They didn't really want to necessarily be there in the first place. And now they have basically a springboard to leave again. But it will be interesting to, uh, to see how these structural effects that we've just discussed on labor force participation will ultimately show up in the labor market statistics. Uh, we have, uh, they obviously haven't shown up yet. Um, we, you know, we see oft, often we see in these discussions and we see this on our Twitter timeline that people make very strong statements about the labor market based on past data. And where we are more cautious than they are is there is to say that, yes, we haven't seen any wage increases in this year uh, that are recorded in the official data. But we are seeing what we are seeing and what we are hearing are is evidence uh, that of, of sufficient of significant labor market tightening going on in some sectors. We've we was talking about these examples in France. Obviously, everywhere the IT sector is now um, incredibly tight. Construction um, as well. Construction is getting tight. So we're seeing, we're hearing these evidence. At the same time, we're hearing these these anecdotes, these evidence from Italy on, on labor force participation which we don't which we partially understand, but not, not fully. Um, so there are signs out there that should make us less complacent about uh, the labor markets. And it is the job of central banks to react to signals, not to data from last year. So we, we need to, you know, if, um, this is the, why central banking is so hard, because you have to make real-time real judgments of where the economy is right now. And the data that are published are pretty much meaningless in that respect. They, you know, they, they, they fall into the, they're, they're part of the information. But, you know, you don't want to start reacting to, to labor market trends after you have seen, you know, mac aggregate macro labor market data. Then you will almost certainly be too, too late because by then 
a wedge dynamic would have would have would have started. Uh, now we, you know, I'm not sure that I expect a huge you know wage price spiral, uh, but what I do expect to see is excess demand from you know government programs, and you know we we have more to come in the eurozone with the you know German digital investments and green investments and all that. Excess demand or a strong rise in demand will produce m- more than localized clusters of labor market shortages. Uh, the economy will eventually adjust to the the increase in demand, but it will not adjust perfectly. And to the extent that it doesn't, it will create inflation, uh, inflationary pressures. And some of those will be in the labor market as companies are seeking to expand businesses. They need to hire labor that might not be uh, available on the market at current and current uh, prices. We've seen this in the UK when there was a shortage of lorry drivers. How quickly! It happens that a, a a the wage of a profession that is on on the whole not well paid turned into one of the best paid professions in the country, giving rise to all sorts of you know jokes about about people switching jobs to become lorry drivers, and you know that can happen very quickly, uh, and therefore this is why central the, the the art of central banking is so difficult right now. Uh, and why the ECB's strong reliance on economic models and on, on, on economic data is systematically leading them to underestimate the problem. That is the problem. It's from, you know, my problem is not so much that these models are wrong, but that they are biased, that they tend to be biased towards the more complacent, uh, the, the, better, the better scenario. And that has generally been the case. I mean... Just a caveat here. I think one of the reasons why that is um, so tricky is because we are in a certain, an unprecedented time that we have this shock and we do not know yet how this will feed through. We didn't see the energy price inflation coming and all the container ships, all the debates about container ship inflation, all these supply chain bottlenecks. Okay, but there's still a debate out there whether this is transitional or whether there's a, that there's a structural effect. Uh, how all these effects will end up in a permanent price, we don't know yet, and I think that's that's why these past models are there is a there was this cut and rift, and we don't know how this will change the structural dynamics of the whole system internationally and also within the euro area. Yeah, and and at risk of stating the obvious, um, the moment that we're going through in terms of the economy is really unusual. Um, We're talking with the pandemic about a once in a century event and one that has involved effectively stopping large sections of the global economy very quickly and then similarly trying to restart them very quickly. Um, That is obviously something that does not happen very often and is therefore difficult for any model based on past data to properly account for. And I think also once you have you went through a period where a sudden change is stop and uh, sudden stops and sudden sudden significant changes happen, it's becoming an experience. And how this will be reflected also in the wage setting behavior, we don't know yet. Once we experienced that, we can do and have done in fiscal policy terms and monetary policies uh, this whatever it takes. This kind of modeling behavior, um, will we see this then coming up in the labor market? Uh, we haven't seen any evidence mm. yet, but it might well be that this is setting precedence that for behavior in other segments of the economy that has yet to unfold. Yeah, this is the interesting, really interesting observation. 
the pandemic has given rise to a lot of shocks in the system that changes the behavior of people in the economy. I mean, you know, we're working from home more than we did in the past. People and some people have decided not to work at all anymore. And as you said, wage setting methods and mechanisms might change as a result of this pandemic. This was also a technology shock and that we become much more reliant on on technology. They become much more ubiquitous in our lives. That is a that is a shock. The you know the productivity impact of computers that was long ignored or not seen by professors of economics are suddenly you know suddenly seen by everybody because we're suddenly in a different environment. So, um, you know, that's probably something to watch out for, something that nobody, you know, where, where the honest answer is, we don't know, uh, but we have to bear that in mind. I think we're going to wrap this up for this week. Thank you for listening and until next Friday.